0: Welcome to the Monobank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history. Funny that. Hey, uh, I am your host. My name is Daniel Downey. I'm a stand-up comedian here in Edinburgh. You haven't heard of me. That's okay. That's allowed. That's fine. Uh, what I do here in Edinburgh is a thing called the the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh, where I take people around the city. I tell them the history of the city, I show them about the place, and I try and make them laugh, right? Now, the reason that I'm bringing this up is because that is what this podcast is. That is what this series of podcasts are all about. It's about giving Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully today you will learn a wee bit and you'll laugh a lot, right? That's the that's the whole point of what I'm doing here. Today's podcast is about a Scottish king called John Balliol. He's remembered as Tomb Tabard, which means empty tunic. Uh, and that's a nickname that was attributed to him on account of the fact that he was very easily manipulated and controlled by others for their own personal gain. You know, he had no real kind of power or authority. He was run by other people. And I <laughs> honestly cannot think of a single world leader in the current climate who is anything like that you know not a single one honest to god um you know john he he suffered a lot of very public humiliations poor john Balliol, but at least he wasn't reduced to like hiding in fridges to avoid difficult questions or anything like that you can uh, by the way, if this is the first time you're listening to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, that's the sort of thing that you should expect, right? I, 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 I'm not going to lie to you; there is a lot of Tory bashing. I'm like the 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 Neil Oliver Antichrist, you know. And if it is the first time you're listening, I suggest you go back to the first episode. I don't really talk about anything topical in the podcast. They go in chronological order, and uh, just go back to the first episode, and it'll it'll give you a wee bit of background into into today's episode as well. Uh, Okay, cool. So without further ado, here is your podcast all about John Balliol and the beginnings of the wars of Scottish independence. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there and I shall, uh, I'll see you on the other side. Enjoy. After Alexander III rode himself clean off a cliff in March 1286, I mean, at least that's what we think happened, right? I mean, who knows? Maybe him and his horse didn't fall off the cliff. Maybe they were pushed off the cliff, right? I, I think that there is a very good chance that we might just find Glyn Maxwell at the bottom of some cliffs after she too clumsily rode herself off of some cliffs, right? Um, anyway, Alexander's death was a, a huge blow for Scotland. It was a massive blow, but for the moment, it was restricted to merely a dynastic crisis. It hadn't quite yet turned into a complete and utter shit show. It was the Brexit before the COVID, if you will, And with Alexander dead, the heir to the throne was his infant granddaughter, Margaret the Maid of Norway, who was made in Norway. And Margaret was the the daughter of Alexander's daughter, Margaret, and the King of Norway, Eric. She was not yet three years old when she was named heir, presumptive, in 1284. And Margaret, she was formally accepted as Scotland's first queen in October, 1286. Until Margaret could reign as an adult, the, the running of the country was placed in the hands of a community of the realm, which sounds like it—it it sounds like one of those kind of like private Oxford clubs that David Cameron and Boris Johnson would frequent when they were young, bombastic pig fuckers, you know. And it reads the realm like a register of the House of Lords because it consisted of two bishops: William Fraser, the Bishop of St Andrews, and Robert Wishop, the Bishop of Stirling. Two earls. Uh, Alexander Comyn, the Earl of Buchan, and Duncan Macduff, the Earl of Fife, and two barons, James the Steward and John Comyn, the Lord of Badenoch. Uh, so basically, you got two bishops plus two earls plus two barons equals one community of the realm. Although, to be quite frank, the last people I would put in charge of looking after a child would be two bishops. The organisation of the community was a show of political maturity and worked effectively, despite some rumblings of discontent from noble families, uh, the Bruce's and the Balliol's, who were not included in the community but considered themselves legitimate claimants to the throne. But once Margaret had been accepted as Queen, the community's most pressing issue was who she should be married to. Alexander III had written to Edward I of England before his death, hinting that he would like Margaret to be married to a member of the English nobility. But the question was, which member of the English royal family should the child be married to? Now, it came 700 years too early for Prince Andrew, who I am sure would have jumped at the opportunity to marry a child. But Edward I, he was... One of the most powerful and respected kings in Europe, the obvious marriage would be to his son Edward, the future Edward II. But such a marriage would likely lead to a union of the crowns, which wasn't desirable because above anything else, Scotland valued its independence, or at least used to. But still, a foreign marriage was deemed preferable to a domestic one because whichever member of the Scottish nobility Margaret was married to, it would likely cause civil unrest and could even lead to civil war. Do you know what? It's it's, it's a bit like when someone from Aloha decides to marry outside of the family. Yes, it's going to be considered controversial, but ultimately... It's probably for the best. Margaret's father, Eric, the king of Norway, was concerned about his daughter being at the centre of warring factions. His preference was for his daughter to marry into the English royalty, obviously unaware that the tabloids would turn on her very quickly and force her to return to Norway. But it was agreed by all three kingdoms, Scotland, England and Norway, at the Treaty of Bergham in July 1290 that Margaret would marry Edward's son, Edward, but the treaty stated that Margaret would marry Edward, but that Scotland would still retain its independence. And should Edward and Margaret not produce an heir, the kingdom would pass to Margaret's nearest heir and not be incorporated into England. Edward I's Negotiators, however, they did leave room for him to change his mind. And Edward, he also insisted in appointing a lieutenant of Scotland the Bishop of Durham, um, who the community had to obey uh, and whom they absolutely didn't. It's it's a position that was completely ignored and not respected at all in Scotland. It's kind of like the the Secretary for State for Scotland in that respect. So in September 1290, Margaret set sail from Norway en route to Leith, but there was wild storms and the ship that she was travelling on was blown off course to Orkney, which at that time in the late 13th century, was still under Norse control. Margaret, she'd been ill the entire journey and she was carried ashore barely alive. And Margaret, she actually died in Orkney, aged only seven years old. She died of seasickness, which I have to admit, I had no idea that was a thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, kids could die of seasickness. I feel like we've been far too blasé about letting kids go away with that Captain Birdseye all these years. Turns out it's far more dangerous than it looks, kids. And Margaret, bless her, she died at seven years old. Uh, she'd only been queen for four and a half years and she was never coronated, never even actually set foot in her kingdom. Her body was taken back to Bergen in Norway and it was buried next to her mother who had died giving birth to her. And Margaret's death that marked the end of the MacMalcolm-Canmore dynasty and it left the country in, uh, inter- in- interregnum, um, which A is a difficult word and B basically means uh, a period between monarchs. Uh, so like when Prince Charles becomes, kings, becomes king, that will essentially be an, an interregnum, you know what I mean? Because you're just waiting for the actual one to come along. Um, and things, they were about to go from bad to worse in Scotland. We were about to step from a Brexit shambles to a full-blown Covid shit show because the the succession on who the next monarch should be was to be disputed and the Treaty of Burgum, it was to be nullified. There were 13 competitors to the throne, but only two had any kind of realistic chance of winning. It was like the the Scottish Premiership in that respect, and the two competitors were John Balliol, the Lord of Galloway, and Robert Bruce, the Lord of Annandale. Uh, now, this Robert Bruce was in his eighties and was the grandfather of that Robert Bruce, um, who was from a they're from a long line of Robert Bruces, which really does make it confusing as fuck. But John Balliol's mother, uh, she founded the very famous Sweetheart and the fantastic beautiful building the Sweetheart Abbey in Dumfries. It's called Sweetheart Abbey because it's built in honor of her husband, who's embalmed heart she is. Uh, she's buried with, hence the sweetheart and Sweetheart Abbey. And it's a really lovely sentiment, I have to say. You know, but uh, it got me thinking. Like, I wonder if my fiance would would you know be willing to build an abbey for me after my death. And I have to say, I doubt it. My my fiance right is more likely to dispose of me the way that the Native Americans would use a buffalo. Do you know what I mean like she'd kill me? consume me entirely and then just leave my heart out on the plains. That's, that's, that's more like like, like Michelle's style, I reckon. John Balliol was the great grandson of David I's eldest daughter, Margaret, and Balliol he had the support of the commons, who were the most powerful family in Scotland. Everyone wanted to sleep with common people. John Balliol's brother-in-law was John Common, who was the Lord of Badenech and a member of the community of the realm. Now The Commons and the Bruces, they were like the Hatfields and the McCoys. There was no love lost between them. Robert Bruce, the claimant, uh, he was closer in proximity as he was the grandson of David's younger daughter, Isabella. Now it might seem obvious that the Bruce had the better claim, as he was a grandson of David's, of one of David's daughters, whereas Belial was a, a great grandson of one of David the First's daughters. However, medieval law it, fav- it favoured primogeniture over proximity. So basically, what that means is the eldest is the most important, the most successful, the most sensible, in the eyes of the law, and my mum as well it must be said and the tensions over who should be king uh, Bruce or Balliol it was threatening to boil over into civil war and so the community they decided to approach Edward I of England to help arbitrate now there is no way of communicating how monumentally stupid a decision that was that is the equivalent of sending your granny to Harold Shipman for a checkup. It is the equivalent of the Jedi Council electing Darth Vader as their head, as their president. Just like, listen, I'm I'm no sure about this guy. Like, he's already annexed Wales. And, and, and what about this Death Star? That? Didn't he worry about that, all right? Didn't he worry about his Death Star? It's all good. He is promising us 350 million space pounds a week if we leave the Intergalactic Union. Uh, is that a tenuous link uh, between Boris Johnson and Darth Vader so that I could compare Boris Johnson to Darth Vader? Yes. Yes, it is, I will admit. But to be fair, they do have a lot in common. You know, they're both the heads of evil organizations. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Boris Johnson, well, you know, he was he was struggling to breathe as well. Right, I'm just going to come out and say this, right? I love Edward the First. right? I love him. I think he is the best bad guy of all time. He is like a pantomime baddie. He's... he's A mix of the Sheriff of Nottingham, Hans Gruber, and and a sprinkling of Elhage Dufin there as well. Like, Edward, in 1290, was 50 years old, right? And this is a man completely committed to strengthening his kingdom. He'd already already annexed West and and North Wales. He'd reorganised his army, feudal, and financial systems, and he was one of the most powerful and impressive kings in Western Europe. In Scotland, he saw an opportunity through the country's dynastic crisis of making himself the the first ruler of the entire British Isles. So basically, like, unfortunately for Scotland, its dynastic crisis happened to, to time with the reign of one of England's most ambitious and successful kings. Edward was ruthless, determined, one of the most brilliant legal minds in Europe. And when he conquered Scotland, he said, a man does good business when he rids himself of a turd. Which is just such a great bad guy line, like, I absolutely love it, like, in the disastrously awful film Braveheart, right, Edward, he gets the best line in the entire film, when he goes, uh, "The the trouble with Scotland is that it's full of Scots, which is the only accurate part of Braveheart, I must say, right, not only is that line absolutely brilliant, but it's brilliant because it, like, actually feels like something Edward would actually have said. Like his his jobby line, his turd line should definitely have made the film. Like bad guys nowadays, they just they just don't get lines like that. You know, you just don't hear bad guys saying stuff like that. Like nowadays they just ramble incoherent shite in Latin, don't they? You know, but then again I suppose our bad guys are not brilliant, ambitious and determined like Edward I was. The competition for the throne became known as the great cause and Edward he was more than happy to arbitrate. Well actually he wasn't he refused to arbitrate and instead wanted to be the judge and not only did he want to be judge he wanted to be referred to as Lord Superior of Scotland throughout. It's always a bit cringy when folk make up their own nicknames isn't it? And he called a parliament on the 6th of May 1291 at Norham Castle on the on the English side of the Tweed which is where the border between Scotland and England is. And at that time, it was very much debatable land, like both countries laid claim to them. And so it was very much a statement of power and intent from Edward. Now, the Scots delegates, they stopped on the Scottish side of the tweed. They didn't want to, to have to go to England to make a decision about Scotland. That seems obvious, right? Like decisions about Scotland should be made in Scotland. That's just obvious, of course. But Edward, he digs his heels and he gives it the whole. It's my ball. I'm going home. And uh, and he, he refuses to cross the border. But when Robert Bruce agreed to Edward's terms and he crosses the border and he swears fealty to him, the other claimants, they had little choice but to follow suit. And Edward, he, he sorts through the claimants and he narrows them down as expected to, to Robert Bruce and to John Balliol. And in November 1292, Edward's council, they find in favour of John Balliol. John Balliol is made king Of Scotland. He's chosen to be the next king of Scotland. Now, although primogeniture did take precedence over proximity, it's very likely that the decision of Edward to make John Balliol king and not Robert Bruce did have a lot to do with him being the easier man to manipulate. You know, it's the same reason why Dominic Cummings chose Boris Johnson to be the prime minister, you know. On the 17th of November 1292, John Balliol was declared King of Scots at Berwick Castle. And just a day later, he was made to pay homage to Edward at Norham Castle. Now, this was a pattern that would continue. When Balliol was crowned at Schoon in St Andrew's Day, the 30th of November 1292, he was within a month summoned to pay homage to Edward yet again. And it was the start of a pretty unhappy four-year reign. For John Balliol who as we know had already gained the unfortunate nickname of Tomb Tabard and Edward he was a guy who would just take any opportunity that he could to to undermine and humiliate John Balliol he even summoned Balliol to London to explain an unpaid wine bill that had been left by his predecessor Alexander III it's good to know that not even Scottish kings could afford London prices, apparently. In 1294, the Scots, they were instructed to raise troops to assist Edward in his war against the French king, Philippe IV. Now, this was a step too far. We had no interest in fighting the French. I mean, mainly because James McFadden's ancestors were, were injured. So, we told Edward to beget to fuck. And at a meeting of the Scottish Parliament at Scone in July 1294, A decision was made to put the affairs of Scotland in an extended council of 12, made up of four bishops, four earls and four barons. It was essentially just an extension of the guardianship, which considering there was now a a fully grown man, grown up king on the throne, it was even more humiliation and embarrassment for John, who was still king, but had been pretty much effectively sidelined by the council. And instead of supporting or raising troops for Edward's war, the council they, they struck up an agreement with France. The Treaty of Parents, or sorry, the Treaty of Paris, or the Old Alliance, as it's more commonly and romantically referred to in Scotland, was ratified in Dunfermline in February twelve ninety-six. It's one of the most famous treaties in the world, and it basically said that should Scotland be invaded by England, France would provide military support, and in return Scotland would put military pressure on England should France require them to. And as part of the treaty, there would also be a marriage between John son Edward and Philippe son Jean. Now, the marriage never happened, and the treaty is little more than two countries with a, a shared dislike of England. And the treaty may have helped Scotland in terms of its place in European politics, but, like, the French, they never really went to any great lengths to help Scotland past its own self-interests anyway, like anytime we needed their help, they were always busy washing their hair or at a cheese-eating competition or something like that. But to Edward, the treaty, it was an act of rebellion because this was a country in which he claimed the overlordship of that was refusing to raise men for his war. And so the tre- the signing of the old alliance it effectively marked the beginnings of the wars of Scottish independence. Things they were about to go from Brexit shambles to full Covid shitshow in Scotland. Boyed by the prospect of French assistance now, the Scottish forces... They gathered at Selkirk in the Borders in March 1296, ready to to take on the English. Now, unsurprisingly, the Bruce's did not attend, and as a result, their land was declared forfeited. The Bruce's instead went to Edward, who had amassed a huge army at Wart Castle near Alnwick on the English side of the border. And on the 25th of March, Robert the Bruce and his son, they swore fealty to Edward, after which Edward referred to John Balliol as the former king of Scotland, meaning that if the Bruce's supported Edward, the throne was going to be up for grabs. And just a day later, the Scots army led by John Common, they attacked Carlisle Castle, which was held by Robert Bruce in their now forfeited lands. Their attack was easily repelled, and then on the thirtieth of March 1296, Edward he launched a ferocious assault on Berwick, which at that time was the largest borough in Scotland. At the time of Edward's insurrection at Berwick, the town had about twelve and a half thousand inhabitants. Edward left only five thousand alive. The Scots launched a counterattack after Berwick, raiding villages and towns in northern England, but Edward he ignored these and instead he began to fortify the town of Berwick. The Scots then moved to the English occupied castle at Dunbar, and the wife of the governor of Dunbar Castle, the Countess of March, she opened the gates for the Scots army. Um she'd forgot to lock the gate when she let the dugout. And so Edward, he sent his forces to retake Dunbar Castle and um, the English army began the siege of the castle on the 25th of April 1296. Two days later, John Common's army, uh, they they arrived to try and relieve the castle, but they were soundly beaten by an English army led by the Earl of Surrey. And after defeat at the Battle of Dunbar, Roxburgh, Edinburgh, Stirling and Perth castles all fell in quick succession. A helpless John Balliol sent Edward a letter seeking peace, but Edward, he wasn't interested. He would only accept a coordinated, unconditional surrender by Scotland. And on the 2nd of July, 1296, at Concardin Castle, John Balliol issued his document of surrender that read, Seeing that we have by evil and false counsel and by our own folly grievously offended and angered our Lord Edward, by the grace of God, King of England, Therefore, we acting under no constraint of of our own free will have surrendered to him the land of Scotland and all of its people. Um, Which is a quote that actually is hanging up in Ruth Davidson's bathroom, Uh, and apparently David Mandeli has it read to him every night before he can fall asleep. A week later on the 8th of July, in a humiliating ceremony in Montrose, Balliol formally and quite publicly resigned his kingship to Edward. Edward had him publicly stripped of his crown, scepter, ring, girdle and tore the red and gold royal insignia of Scotland from his surcoat which is where the empty tunic, tomb tabard nickname comes from. John and his sons they were sent to the Tower although he would later be released into papal custody and permitted to retire to estates in France where he died in 1313 which is I suppose the perfect year for one of the most unlucky of all Scottish kings to die, 1313. After Montrose, Edward made triumphant progress as far north as the Middy Firth before ransacking the country, systematically and purposefully removing Scotland's records and relics. Uh, the Great Seal of Scotland, it was ceremoniously broken in two. The state archives, they were all boxed up and shipped out of the country, most of which were actually lost in a ship that sank on its way back to England. Uh, the Black Rood, which was one of Scotland's most important and sacred relics, it was a, a piece of the cross which St Margaret had comforted, comforted herself with on her deathbed i'm just uh, i'm just hearing that for the first time uh, a piece of the cross which saint margaret comforted herself with on her de- it does sound like she was she was pleasuring herself with a crucifix doesn't it yeah well, maybe that's why it was it was called the rude there you go very rude excellent well good for you margaret anyway i hope you enjoyed it right anyway moving on daniel jesus christ uh and anyway most significantly uh edward took the stone of destiny Um, Scotland's most significant national artefact. Um, But before Edward left Scotland, a parliament was held in Berwick on the 28th of August at which a compilation of all the earls, lords, bishops and leading burgesses who had sworn fealty to Edward and formally recorded their homage to him as King of Scotland was drawn up. The document became known as the Ragman's Roll and it had over 1,500 names in total. But there was one name that was missing from the Ragman's Roll. That of minor nobleman William Wallace, um, which is a big, big deal, ladies and gentlemen, because believe you me, for a man from Lanarkshire to not sign on, unheard of, unheard of. And so uh, Edward left Scotland in September 1296. It had only taken him five months to pretty much completely subjugate the country. It's why Edward is known as the, the Hammer of the Scots, I mean, not that that's anything to be proud of. I mean, Christ, everyone hammers the Scots, don't they? So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, What I do at the end of of each podcast in the Montebank History of Scotland series is I try and match what I've been talking about in the history um, with a whiskey here in Scotland, a malt whiskey, which I think would be a a good accompaniment to to what you've just listened to. Um, And so... This week I'm gonna I'm gonna match this podcast with a Laphroaig, which might seem a uh, you know Laphroaig is obviously one of the the most popular and one of the most famous of of uh, Scotch malt whiskies. It's an Islay malt. Um, it's it's a heavily heavily peated malt. It's instantly recognisable, full blood full bodied, medicinal peaty. Dry flavor, um, and the reason I've picked that is because I thought, Do you know what, I'm going. I need a whiskey that I think matches Edward the First's personality, uncompromising, completely unique, and determined to just stand out there on its own. And I think that is very much Laphroaig, It's a kind of love it or hate it type dram, uh, and also it kind of keeps in time with what we're talking about in the podcast. When 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 shit's falling apart, you're not going to sit and have the the very smooth, easy to drink, delectable dram. You need to gulp something and go, ah, and get that kind of burny feel in your stomach so that you're ready to fight. I don't even know what I'm talking about now, but fuck, it makes sense to me. Um, so there you go, Lefroy. Incidentally, an interesting fact about Lefroy: it was uh, one of the first distilleries to be entirely run by a woman, uh, Bessie Williamson. In the early 19th century, although women are very heavily involved in whiskey distilling um, from, from its early conception, it must be said. Right, Anyway, I'm ranting about whiskey now. Um, so yeah, and what I try to do through this podcast is each week, if I can raise enough money, I will send someone a bottle of the whiskey. So if you think there's someone who's deserving of a, a bottle of Laphroaig, uh, it could be like an NHS uh, worker, a frontline worker, it could just be a patient parent or a, a thoroughly sound person then you can nominate them to receive this bottle of whiskey. And if I can raise enough money, I'll send them that bottle out to them. Uh, all you need to do is follow me at Montebank Tours on my social media. You can get me on Facebook, Instagram, all the usuals. Leave me a comment, a DM, send me an email and um, nominate someone. I pick one at random. And if you would like to contribute to the podcast, um put like a couple of quid, uh, the price of a cup of coffee, towards we've been able to buy folk bottles of whiskey. Uh, you can do so at my Buy Me a Coffee account. Um, if you're going to buy me a coffee, it's just at Montebank History of Scotland. Or even better, if you've watched or so watched, if you've listened to a few of the podcasts now and you're quite enjoying the series, and you'd like to to give me the price of a, a cup of coffee every single month, it could be as little as, as two three pound. Um, then you can go onto the Patreon page and you become a patron of the podcast. Again, it's just at Montebank History of Scotland. every every, all of it's really really appreciated guys so i also i should point out have a wee youtube channel where i do like little scottish history videos again just at Montebank history scotland just like everything subscribe it tell a friend to all the usual stuff that you get told to do at the end of podcasts thank you so much for listening folks um if this is the first time you listen to the podcast go back and listen to a few others just the same shite it's the same thing you'll have fun promise you'll enjoy and uh yeah i hope to hear from you all next week cheerio everyone bye bye